creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I am your host, Andy J. Pizza. And the only thing that I think is more frustrating than not knowing what you want as a creator is knowing exactly what you want as a creator. Um, and no one actually letting you have it. You know, for years, I wrestled with every option. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Did I want to make band posters, character design, book covers, illustrative branding, editorial, infographics, like what? I tried everything and nothing felt right. And then I finally figured it out. I wanted to focus on making picture books, but there was just one problem. No one would let me actually make one. And, you know, email after email after email and pitch after pitch and draft after draft. I just came to a complete dead end. And what do you do when you finally know what you want, but no one will even give you a shot? What you do is you pick yourself. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that in just a second. Stay tuned. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase.
So this is episode two of what we were calling the Creative Summer School Series. And it's a summer school series because we've been revisiting some of the foundational ideas of this show that we've gone through over the past eight years. And I just had the feeling that I needed to revisit some of these things and tighten up and kind of recalibrate using some of the ideas as well as like bring them further and show how they fit together. And I thought maybe you need this as well. And I realized that these steps are essentially how I built my creative practice and career. These steps are the process I've done over and over and over again to create each arm of my creative business. You know, I've, I do picture books, I do client work, I do talks, I do the podcast, I do classes, I do all kinds of different things. And uh, each one of those arms have utilized, most of them have utilized every single part of this process. And if you want to be a solo creator, if you want to make, build your own practice, this series is the best advice that I have to get you to find direction, to make some actual progress and essentially build a thriving practice that's not based on trends or going viral. Now, even if you don't want to be a full-time solo creator, if you want to have a long game practice, I really think that utilizing all the pieces from this series are is the best way to future-proof your creative practice, whether you're hired and working in-house or whether you're doing it on your own. And so Long-time listeners will recognize some of the creative career path in there, some of the style class in this series, and it's kind of a synthesis of a bunch of the best ideas. Um, and then in the future, we're going to get into a little bit of the third class that I have on Skillshare, which talks about how to make it an actual ecosystem where you're like earning a paycheck rather than playing the lottery with your creativity. Episode one was all about finding your direction using what I call the niche, the niche bullseye. Episode two, this episode is about what to do after you know the direction you want to take. Now you know what you want, but nobody's just going to give it to you. What do you do? You need to make a portfolio with a personal project that nobody's asking for, but you're going to give them that gives you a shot when no one else will. Why do you need to create a self-generated portfolio? Because in order for someone to pay you for anything, uh, for anyone to take a chance on you, like they have a million options, why would they take a chance on you? They need to know that you are capable and why you are so different than the other options. And the only way to do that isn't to tell them, but to show them. A personal project that builds out a small portfolio can achieve both proving you've got what it takes as well as showcasing your unique selling point within the, the genre or the market that you find yourself in creatively. Last episode, we talked about finding your people or finding your market and how that gives you a direction. In this episode, we want to talk about how to break into that market that you defined in a major way. One, write your own roles. The first thing you got to do if you know what you want, but nobody's giving it to you, no one will give you a shot, is I think you really have to write your own perfect role as a creator. Okay, 
Let's talk about the 1999 TV show that I think changed entertainment for a good 15 years. Now, I'm not saying it changed it for the good or for the bad. I'm not making a judgment per se on that. But the crazy part is it was a show that ran just one season. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Let's talk about freaks and geeks for a minute. The cultural impact uh, that the people from this show made is just unlike anything other like and they did so with just one season like very little kind of real estate on television like the creator Paul Feig you probably know him he's also the same person that made Bridesmaids and really broke open Melissa McCarthy's career post Gilmore Girls this show also was Judd Apatow's like big break. Mike White was a writer and producer, AKA Ned from Maggot Death. Uh, <laughs> the guy who is the roommate in School of Rock, who also wrote School of Rock and Nacho Libre. And also weirdly that recent show, White Lotus, Mike White Lotus, they call him. Uh, the show also held the big break for a bunch of actors you might've heard of. I don't know, Linda Cardellini, Seth Rogen, Jason Siegel, Rashida Jones, James Franco, Busy Phillips, Martin Starr, just to name a couple of them. Um, but I think that, it, that maybe the true genius behind the show uh, was casting director Allison Jones, who I've talked about a few times on the show. I'll always throw her name out there because it's a dream of mine to meet her and, and pick her brain. If somebody has some kind of weird connection to Allison Jones, I can't find any contact information online, but I'd love to have her on the show. Anyway, I could go on, but I won't much longer. I mean, guest appearances by Jason Schwartzman. The point I want to make is that I don't think this show as massively impactful and and as like kismet kind of like can you believe how did all these things come together uh, as much as all of that just seems totally insane i don't think that it was magic yes there seemed to be some magic in those old high school drinking fountain waters of this show but what if it wasn't just a magical cast and crew? What if the power of the show was that of one of the dungeon masters of the show, Judd Apatow, actually cast some magic with some kind of creative magic spell? I'm not actually saying that Judd was into secret witchcraft, but I am saying that I think that Judd's approach to his craft may have been the secret sauce, not necessarily on that show, but secret sauce on what made this group of people so culturally impactful. Because I don't think it was a cosmic happy accident. You know, interview after interview after interview, you hear the same thing from the people that worked on that show, that Judd told everybody, do not wait for roles to be cast in. You have very little chance of surviving in this business, giving all of that power of your whole future to somebody else to see your potential and write a role for you. Like over and over and over, you hear all of these actors say that Judd was like, hey, write. You need to get to write. Even if you don't aspire to be a writer, even if you don't think you're a very good writer, write something, write anything. 
that helps people understand what you're capable of, how you see yourself, how, what your potential is. It's no wonder that this group went on to write things like Super Bad and Knocked Up and Forgetting Sarah Marshall and just tons and tons of the movies in the direction of so much film and TV for a huge chunk of time. And what I'm saying is, is that it's not a mystery that they changed the story of entertainment because they wrote that story by writing their own roles. And I'm not making a judgment on like, was that that era of like, was it a good thing, a bad thing that has nothing to do with what I'm saying. Uh, what I am, you know, it, honestly, it was probably too white, too broy, too straight, too fill in the blank, whatever you want to say, um, all, all true. But if you don't like whatever it was, the point is start writing different roles. You know, if you want the roles to be different, write your own roles. And you say, Andy, I'm not an actor. I'm not trying to be cast in any roles. Oh, you mean you never get selected from the pack by a director, illustrators? What about an art director, huh? Didn't see that coming, right? It's the same thing. If you don't want to be, if you don't want to be waiting for the chance to illustrate an article, write your own articles, write them bad. Like, I'm telling you, a lot of these writer actors have done that, just that, written bad stuff, just to get the ball moving, just to give someone a glimpse at what they might be capable of, just to stay top of mind, just to keep going when the flow has stopped and nobody is knocking at their door. And public speakers, if you don't want to wait to be chosen for a role on the next conference lineup, Write your own podcast. That's what I did. How do you know if you should be writing your own roles, no matter what kind of creative endeavor you're doing? There's just one super clear, obvious sign. You are waiting. No one is opening the door. No one is knocking at your door to pick you to do the thing that you want to do. If you are waiting, you should be writing. I really strongly believe that. Now, just... On the other side of that, if people are, you know, bashing down your door and you're having a blast doing the things you want to do, don't be so distracted and worried. Like, I got to be writing, guys. Come on. Like, no, just do the things that people are asking you to do. And when that flow stops, it's time to start making waves again. But if you are just waiting around to be discovered, quit waiting and start acting by writing. Creativity is not a waiting game, it's a making game. Want to act, act by starting to write. You must create your own content, and by that, I don't just mean internet content, but sometimes that can mean that. I mean generating content, generating substance, generating something to say, a point of view, a take. How do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm gonna tell you right in point number two. Okay, chapter two, write your own dream brief. I read that first. It was, write your own damn brief. How about you get your own bottle? <laughs> get, get your own dream. Step two is to create a personal project whose primary purpose is to act as a portfolio. If, you, if you're waiting, if you're trying to break into something that you've never done before and no one will give you a shot, what you need to do is give yourself your own shot and, and an example of what you are capable of. And you're making the best guess 
of what the ideal role is for you. So we're talking about casting yourself in the perfect role for you instead of waiting to be picked and discovered. Look, no one dreams of a fairy art mother coming like I do. I'm telling you, I dream of that moment still today. I'm ho- like, I'm waiting. I'm hoping. So like, I love my creative practice. I truly do. It's a lot more than I ever dreamed it would be in so many ways, but I still secretly hope, wait for someone to accidentally stumble upon this podcast and be like, you know what? This is what this guy should be doing. And I'm the person to bestow it like this, this fairy art mother gatekeeper who has all the power to just cast me in the role that I never knew that I should play. Like, I still want that. Who doesn't? I think all creators want to be seen and and understood and celebrated and even believed in more than they believe in themselves. I'm still secretly waiting for someone to take a look at me and tell me who I am. Like, man, I just think we want that so bad. I desperately want that Judd Apatow or the casting director, Allison Jones, to show up on my doorstep and be like, This is who you are creatively. This is your perfect role. This will unlock your creative full potential. And I desperately want that Hagrid moment, man. Where's my Hagrid moment? I want that moment where someone shows up at my doorstep and is like, I know you've been living under the stairs creatively, but you are a creative wizard, man. And I want that sorting hat to just be like, this is the creative Hogwarts house you belong in. Like we, I want someone to spend enough time and energy and have the insight. Like I want that. Okay. But I don't think that it's gonna happen while you're hiding out under the creative stairs. I think you gotta get yourself out there a little bit. You gotta take a whack at it. You know, a little more about Judd Apatow and then I'm gonna shut up about him, okay? I'm gonna get off of it. But Judd is like a real Hagrid. And I wish that I, I had someone like that in my life because he actively, he says, he actively looks for the magic in people and tries to name it and figure it out. He loves more than anything taking somebody that others don't see the potential in, you know, a side character, a bit part player and saying, I actually think you're meant to do the lead role. And this is what, you know, the reason nobody knows is because nobody's ever seen a lead role like you. You know, you got to imagine when these people step into the lead role, the reason it's a breakout is because we've never seen a lead character like that before. And it takes a lot of vision and imagination to see that. For instance, the movie Four-Year-Old Virgin was literally just Judd trying to figure out what does it look like for someone like Steve Carell to be the lead in a movie because he hadn't really done it up to that moment. This was his true breakout moment. He had had like a great role on Anchorman and stole the show with a crazy scene uh, on Bruce Almighty. I remember just dying laughing um, with his ridiculous portrayal of Evan Baxter reading the news and doing gibberish in the chair. Man, I I died. Um, But he was just seen as like, oh, there's that guy. There's that random weird guy um, who plays that small, bizarre part. Um, And the office was just starting, but it was only doing okay. And no one saw that potential for the true lead man besides Judd. And actually, after the success of 40-Year-Old Virgin, 
where they really like found who this character could be and who this actor was. Like it's reported that like Greg Daniels, who was behind the American office, actually started to change the role of Michael Scott to be more like that character from that movie. And I mean, who doesn't want for someone like Judd, any, the illustration equivalent of Judd, the, the, the storytelling equivalent of Judd, somebody out there, if you know what I, if I'm getting it wrong, you got some, actually, no, don't, that just sounds like trolls coming for me. Um, I don't need that feedback, but who doesn't want for someone to come look into your soul and say, this is the best of you. And I'm not saying you shouldn't want it. I, I want it every gosh darn day, but I'm also not holding my breath, not hiding out under the creative stairs. Because for every Steve Carell, there are millions of others that never meet their Hagrid, Judd, fairy art mother. And so your job is to do the best job you can. You don't have to do a perfect job. Be your own Judd. Don't wait for some kind-hearted soul to spend gobs of time asking themselves, what's special about this person? I'm just going to sit around and waste my life thinking about what this person should do with their life. Like, it is so rare. Do as much of that work as you possibly can. The difference between Sideman Steve Carell as, you know, I love Lamp Guy on Anchorman and Michael Scott for eight seasons of The Office is the same difference between Afraid of Heights, Clark Kent in Smallville and Super Universe saving Superman in the comics. The powers are the same. The person is the same. The potential is the same. The difference is the awareness of the person, the self-awareness. And I strongly believe that that is what we're, I think that's what we're here to do on the planet is to be like, what is this life? Life is pulsing through this particular container at this particular moment. What is it capable, capable, capable of while it's flowing all the way through these particular genes? These Levi's, these genetics, how are we going to do it? The same way that Superman did. He didn't do it hiding out under the stairs, reading about books like self-help books about how do you get, uh, how does one fly? How do you, how do you get a, a past the fear of heights? No, no knock on self-help, huge self-help uh, believer. I love self-help like a complete and utter goofball, uh, but he learned to fly out there fighting a villain, trying stuff making mistakes, getting knocked off a skyscraper and being like, whoa, what the heck, man? I can fly. I don't need to be afraid of heights. He discovered his strengths trying other things and through failing. And, you know, as we were talking the other week about the market and your people, uh, you know, I started thinking about how, um, you know, we have these, I, I have my own creative heroes that I'm like, man, they just hit that sweet spot. And you're just like, oh, I want to, I wish I had that. But what you don't wish you had is all the mistakes they made leading up trying to fit in places they didn't fit, you know, trying to be part of a group of people that weren't their people. And most creators that didn't just wait to be picked, that didn't just win the creative lottery, they spent a lot of time messing around. They spent a lot of time making flops, making crap that people don't like, that's awkward. You know what I mean? Like, as I was thinking through this, I kept coming across little examples of that. You know, I saw on TikTok a clip of Sacha Baron Cohen, you know, the guy who you probably know as Borat. Uh, I saw him on, you know, a clip from his movie, Ali G. Technology 
And that movie, if you don't know, Ali G was a character like Borat where he would be in disguise interviewing people. He had a whole show and it was completely hilarious. Huge fan of that style of comedy. But when he went to go make the movie Ali G, this is prior to Borat, it was a fully scripted movie. Like they, they hadn't figured out how do you make a movie where it's all unscripted and, or they didn't know how to take a chance on it. And that Ali G movie, I've only seen clips of it, but it does not have what I love about Sacha Baron Cohen's comedy. Um, it doesn't contain that Borat thing and it didn't stop him from going and trying again. If anything, it's the thing that kept the ball rolling by writing his own role, by trying to be like, maybe I'll be, maybe this is the kind of market of comedy that I can fit in because that's what, you know, my heroes have done. And that role, that type of movie did not work for him. You know, he fell off that skyscraper and realized flying isn't one of my powers, but then he, you know, tried it again and did it a different style with Borat and had this giant, huge success. Another comedian that I'm a major fan of is Tom, uh, Tim Robinson. And uh, Tim Robinson had a similar thing. Like he created this cult classic show called I Think You Should Leave. I think I did a whole episode <laughs> on that show, which I kind of regret because the things that I find funny about that show are not the super vulgar stuff. I, you know, I don't, it's not a, a big deal to me. That's just not my humor. The humor that I find with Tim Robinson is just the absurd and the weird voices and the, the weird phrasing and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of my jam. But Tim Robinson also starred in a show called Detroiters. I watched a few episodes of that. I thought it was really funny, but it, it didn't, it wasn't his fit. Like, I think you should leave doing these kind of skits. It was more of a typical sitcom. And his best moments in the show that I saw were ones where he was acting in a way that didn't really fit a sitcom. And you know, for me, what this illustrates is that you've got to mess up. You've got to be willing to take a guess as you go to try to find what is the perfect role for you. You're probably going to be wrong a lot more than you are right. But that's still progress because once you get to the other side of that movie, once you get to that other side of that project, you have so much more information, uh, if not what you want, what you don't want. And that is progress too. And if nobody remembers the Ali G movie, they're going to be excited about Borat. And we get so caught up worrying about what if it's bad? Well, what if it's bad? No one will watch it. And if you, if you go on to make something great, people will love it. People will share it and it will, uh, it, it'll be fine. What you don't need to worry about is whether it's going to be bad. You need to worry about whether it will be at all. And it probably won't if you don't make it happen. And so what do you got to do is make a bet. In the last episode, you identified your people. Like these are the these, this is where I think, this is the kind of comedy I think I fit into. I think I fit into a sitcom. I think I fit into skits. I think I fit, like what market, what genre, what group do you think are your people? Maybe it's logo design. Maybe it's lo-fi hip hop, whatever it is, doesn't matter. But once you feel like, I think that's where the context in which my uniqueness will fit and then eventually stand out in, it's time to make a personal project that can act as a portfolio to show the world 
how to use what you've got, just like 40-year-old virgin showed the world how to use Steve Carell as a lead person. What does it look like with you running the show? Why a personal project? Who freaking said that? Yeah, come on. Whoever did this, just confess. We promise we won't be mad. How dare you question the wisdom of the personal project? Just kidding. It's a phenomenal question. There's a couple reasons why I think this is the way to go. Number one, as you go to do this work, you're going to feel unsure. And I think we, I personally, at least, I can just speak from my own experience here. As I go to make something, the, the doubts and the fears and the imposter syndrome and the FOMO and like, yeah, you've chosen the wrong thing. Like, this isn't going to work. This, you know, especially if you're starting something new and you're taking a guess at like, I think I could do this. I can imagine the first time you step onto that set and you are the leading person in the movie. First time that happens, there is going to be so much learning. It's going to be hard. It's probably going to fit like a sweatshirt of hornets. You know what I mean? It's not going to be comfortable. It's a gamble. You're trying something. And a personal project, a project is ideal for this because you can't know it's the right thing. You can't know it's the right fit until the movie's out, until you've had the experience. You won't know until you try. But making it a project makes it self-contained. There's a start and there's an end, and it allows you to say, look, even if it's wrong, it's not forever. It's the best bet I have with all the information I have right now. Uh, I'm not going to keep gathering information because that's just another way of procrastinating. I'm going to make this thing, and on the other side, I'll have a better vantage point and know whether this is actually right. Um, I'll know so much more than I do now. The second reason I really think that a personal project is the ideal way of moving towards you finding your ideal fit as a creator is I think it's the perfect balance of the two opposing forces that get talked a lot about when it's um, when they're diving into the research of what it takes to be successful in any endeavor and there are two things it's grit and pivoting and the weird thing is that they kind of seem like the opposite thing and I feel like when you're when when you look at these two you probably have a preference for one you just put all your eggs in that basket and um, and end up completely missing out on the value of the other so grit, if you don't know, grit is just pushing through something no matter how hard it is, no matter how much you're failing, like you just keep swimming, you just keep going. That's Dory, okay? Um, you, you just keep going. That's grit. Pivoting is Ross. It's pivot! You know, it's, it, it's the idea that you just completely change all the time, really fast, failing fast, changing course every single step of the way, um, you know, never putting all your eggs in one basket, just tiny little bets. And they seem like polar opposites, but I think that a personal project is the perfect place where you can get the right amount of both of those. And you can kind of make your bet you know, put as much money down on the table as you feel certain about this thing. You know, when I was doing a project to see like, should I do book cover illustration? Is that my direction? I was really unsure and I thought I'm going to make a personal project and it's going to be five, uh, five book covers I'm going to make, five screen printed book covers. And uh, 
And I wasn't, cause I was really unsure. But when I went to go make this podcast, I felt so convicted. Like, I think this is, I need to be in the speaking world. I think speaking is my medium talking. I, I think that's my, one of my ideal directions. And I, instead of thinking I'll, t- I'll make five podcasts, I thought I'm going to make a hundred before that's how much grit I'm willing to pay down on this bet um, before I pivot. And so whatever it is, you get to commit to doing something long enough to get past the initial learning curve and the resistance and and the voices telling you you shouldn't be doing this. Like you've got to do a commitment. There's got to come a time, I think, in, in a project. It's the middle of the marathon where you're questioning, like, should I keep going? But you've committed to do it. And hopefully you've committed to kind of the right level of bet based on your conviction. But once you've completed the commitment, then you are completely free to press on or pivot in a small or huge way. And I've, I've found these little bets that they're called sometimes in uh, the, the entrepreneur space, um, are, uh, these little personal projects are the best way to slowly but surely fail your way to some kind of unlocking of success and where you fit in the market. Chapter three, it's the call to action. Every episode of this show, we try to give you something actionable that you can do right now, the second you finish listening to the podcast, that is a quick, easy win that pushes things just a little bit forward. So it's call to to action, call to adventure for you creatively. And here's where it gets spicy because it's time to actually write your dream beef. Your dream beef. Man, I dream of beef. Woo, that hamburger Shake Shack. Woo, that's the first fast food hamburger where when I see that logo, I'm like, okay, dang it. Woo, I need some of that and the cheese fries. Not your dream beef, though. Your dream brief is what I was going to say. Your dream assignment, your dream movie to be cast in, album to be, you know, asked to play on. Do people do? I don't know. What, what is your dream project? Uh, basically, the best way I've come up with personal projects over the years, it starts with me daydreaming, not what do I want to do? There's something so vague and open. And as a creator, there's always 800 options. And it just very, it's very difficult in that abstract way to nail anything down that you can actually commit to as a project. And so the best way that I've, uh, uh, you know, found a kind of back window into actually creating something that I can do is to pretend like it's an email with a PDF even attached to the email that says, hey, we think you would be perfect for this. You know, it's such a powerful thought experiment for me. And and, and I don't know why, but it, it just works. So I think what dream opportunity do I wish someone hired me for? All of a sudden, I get all these different ideas. So imagine, let yourself dream. What do you wish you got hired for? What's your dream role? If you're really an actor, this looks like what genre of movie, what director, what kind of humor does it have? What's the topic? What, you know, 
what do you, it might even be like a remake of a movie that might get the, the, the gears turning of like, man, I wish I was cast in that film and then write that short film. That's the project. Musicians. I feel like so many musicians have done this uh, with some really interesting results. People like M83, he had a big album that broke him into working in film. And it seems like the album was a dream brief. It was like, uh, it's called Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, and it has his big hit on there, and uh, and he's and it feels like he dreamt up, what if I got an email with a PDF brief that said, hey, we want you to rescore the movie E.T., and you, and you just do it. And I saw this on TikTok, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I think it was rapper Vince Staples, and he said he wanted to, he was dreaming of getting asked to do syncs for big budget soundtracks. And so what he did was he just used the up-and-coming movies up over the next few years as writing prompts for every song on his album and then placed a ton of those songs. And I think, man, to me, that's just creatively super inspiring. I feel like if I get too highfalutin and too kind of in my head about, is that art though? It just doesn't do it for me. Maybe it does for you. I'm just, I'm just from Indiana. Okay. So for me, it's very inspiring. Cool. And before you're like, ew, so strategic, how inauthentic. Look, I think the only time strategy truly is ew is when you are inauthentic about it. If you don't dream of syncing rap songs on mainstream movies because it's just about the money, then maybe it is a bit ew, right? But if it's something that actually makes you come alive and it is this powerful creative springboard, use whatever you got, um, that's the power of the dream brief. So the dream brief idea comes from my final project assignment when I was at college. And what I found was that if I went ahead and created the project instead of pretending to, like doors would open. So my final project was a tiny little coloring book based on indie rock songs. But instead of creating a mock, you know, uh, like digital layout. I actually just printed it, stapled it like a zine. And I created all this like in-store kind of signage things and had this black backdrop and did a photo shoot and made it look, look like the full real thing. And it actually existed. It was an actual coloring book that I could hold in my hands. And that directly led to a publishing deal for my first book, The Indie Rock Coloring Book. Now, you may have to get creative and I challenge you not to make a mock version of this project. I think the thing that really made this different than just a college project is that a lot of people, their projects just existed as mock-ups of, uh, you know, a beer brand. Instead of just brewing some beer and making your own labels, even if it's a small batch, like that's a totally different essence. I think the key is to actually do the thing. You know, when I wanted to get speaking engagements, when I thought that I think that needs to be a big part of what I do, I feel like it's it's I feel like it's the next bet that I want to make. I didn't do a video doing a mock talk in my bedroom and being like, I could do this on your stage. No, I, instead, I thought, what is a real version of something that I could do without any permission from anybody else that would exhibit the same qualities that proved I was able to give a decent speech on stage? 
And that's why I started this podcast. And it's why I didn't start a purely interview podcast because that didn't build the portfolio that proved the kind of thing that I wanted to prove. And instead I thought I'm going to do a hundred episodes and it's going to be a portfolio of talks. And that's why for the first, like, I don't know, 60 episodes, there weren't any interviews and I hadn't even planned on it. And, and it's still not a super interview heavy show, as you know. And the same went for kids books. You know, the first thing I did, like after I really hit a wall and I found that every single publisher was like a guarded fortress that would not let new people in, I got really frustrated for a minute. And then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I want to do this. And so I'm just going to do it. And I started making kids books that, um, you know, I started actually the wrong way. I started making kids book stories and just kind of publishing them on my blog, but the, it didn't work. It didn't lead to anything because they were just mock projects. You know, it didn't say, oh, I really believe in myself enough to post this on my blog and give it a couple of illustrations. No, like uh, what really started to get things rolling was writing my own roles and actually believing in them enough to make them into zines. And those zines turned into small press books. And by the time I got hired by a bigger publisher, they didn't have to ask if I could do it. It wasn't a risk. They know I can do it because I already had. And in fact, that first major publisher when they hired me, they didn't even realize that I hadn't done a major picture book before. And it was because of, I was just doing it. And so get creative. What could you do without any permission from anyone that would be exactly like as close to as your dream brief that could show up in your inbox? Like what can you cook up that will show them exactly how you would like to be hired? That's your dream brief. Now go for it. You know, sometimes for me, if I have an idea that I'm really passionate about, if I have something I think like this is magic, my tendency and a tendency I see a lot in creators is to sit on that idea like it's your egg and you're a mama bird and you're like, it's not ready to hatch until it's a movie. It's not ready to get out there until, you know, it's on Saturday Night Live. It's not ready until Universal releases the album on Spotify with a huge campaign. That's how good this thing is. Don't do that. You know, back to Tim Robinson, like Tim Robinson had skits on Saturday Night Live that they just remade better on his show on Netflix. And the thing that's really bad is that the better the idea, the more I want to hide it, the more I want to keep it secret and safe until it's the perfect moment to let it out. But what I've found is the opportunities don't come. The ball does not start rolling until I start writing my own rolls. The ball is not going to roll if you're sat on it. And the only time you sit on the ball in basketball is when you're up ahead and the clock is ticking. Okay. If you are down, shoot the shot, make the project, put it out in the real world. Chances are so few people are going to see it initially that by the time it lives in its glory. No one's going to be thinking, what a repeat. They're going to be thinking, 
I've never seen this before. And the people that have are going to be like, whoa, man, can you remember? I was there at the beginning when they first put this idea on a random TikTok. Like, get it out there. Do not sit on the ball. Do not, or the ball will not start rolling. If you want to get things rolling, you got to write your own roll. You got to pick up the pen, even if you suck at writing. You're not trying to get hired as a writer. You're not gonna trying to get hired as a, someone who's going to write for the New York Times. You're trying to illustrate for the New York Times. And if you're a writer, what about putting yourself in the, your own movies? Like tr whatever you got to do, play every role that you have to play to get the thing moving. You know, I think back to Paul McCartney in the days of Wings, like he, he, nobody, none of the band showed up to the studio, so he just recorded every instrument. And he's probably not the best drummer, okay? Like, you're not, you don't have to do it all well. Doing it bad is so much better than not doing it at all. All right, that's it for another episode of the Creative Pep Talk podcast. Hey, if you want to dive deeper into these things, the Creative Summer School series that we're doing takes a lot of ideas from the three classes we have on Skillshare. If you go to Skillshare.com slash Creative Pep, this episode and the previous episode are uh, really within the wheelhouse of the first class, which is all about turning your creativity into a career and some of the um, things we go over in the Creative Career Path Handbook, which we've sold out of the actual little mini handbooks, but we still have it as an ebook. If you go to creativepeptalk.etsy.com, you can get that. Woo! Okay, so... Another, that's another episode in the bank. Hopefully, 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 hopefully it brings you tons of creative pep for another week of, of, you know, just putting in the time, putting in the hours. That's what I make this show for. Massive thanks to all the patrons um, from, from Patreon. We are partially funded by the people that listen to this show. Um, and the people that are patrons of the show at patreon.com slash creative pep talk. We have a, all kinds of hidden expenses for making a podcast. You know, there's the email list cost money once it gets to a certain point. And um, we've been there for a bunch of years and uh, we, we have editing software. We have editors to pay. We have bills to pay and, and virtual mouth ears to feed with pep and we can only do it um with uh with that help and so that helps a ton so thank you patrons thanks to yoni wolf and the band y for our theme music thanks to connor jones of pending beautiful for editing this show so beautifully and thanks to the whole creative pep talk team ryan appleton sophie miller katie chandler thank you so much for making this whole process so fun uh well, i couldn't do it without your help and thanks to everybody for listening until we speak again stay pepped up mm -hmm.